Well, how many of you thought, I bet I'm going to go to church this morning and watch people crack eggs over their heads? <laughs> yeah, only at Genesis. Well, thank you for volunteering. The lovely aroma up here now uh, of some sort of hard-boiled rotten egg smell, uh, but I'll get beyond it, I promise. A very happy Easter to all of you. I'm Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here, and it was a joy to watch you come in this morning. You sound great this morning singing. You look great. Some of you even smell great. Uh, it's really good to be together this morning on Easter Sunday. And this morning, I want to tell you the story of two men. And these two men were diametrically opposed to one another in who they were and how they lived. Two men who couldn't have found themselves in different places at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. And they were two men who I believe their stories tell and explain Easter maybe better than any other. And so to begin, I want to lead you to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be starting in verse 32. And just so you know, if you uh, are new here especially, we use this resource called uh, the YouVersion Bible app. You can download it. It's a free resource. And if you go to more and events on the app, you can follow along with everything I'm going to talk about today. Uh, you can go back to that if you're curious later on. It's a great resource if you want to check out the Bible, get to know it a little bit more. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23. That's where we're going to start. And if you don't care about any of that, that's okay. We're going to have everything on the screen as well, so you can follow along that way. Now, a little bit of background before um, I get into Luke chapter 23. The book of Luke in the New Testament, in the Bible, is an account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Um, and by the time we get to Luke chapter 23, Jesus is on his way to his death. He's been falsely accused, he's been tortured, he's been beaten, and now he's been uh, uh, um, left to carry his own cross to the place of his own execution. And then in verse 32, Luke includes an interesting and yet I think very important component to the story of Jesus' death. In Luke chapter 23, verse 32, Luke records this. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. Now, crucifixion had been customary, had become customary uh, for those who were deserving among the Roman government. And by this point, it had been around for about 100 years, maybe a little longer, and it was used as a deterrent towards those who caused major issues within the Roman Empire, namely treason and murder. Now, while we read this story and we focus primarily on Jesus, which we ought to, it should be noted that to the Roman government, this was just another execution on another day. There was nothing significant about what was happening in this moment. Now, of course, there was a lot of rumor and controversy around the person of Jesus, but that was nothing new to the Romans. They had you know, false prophets and Messiah-like people all the time coming and going, especially in and around the area of Jerusalem and Judea. That said, Luke, for some reason, decides to include the story of these criminals with Jesus in his account. And I think he does it for a really specific reason. It should be noted, he didn't have to. right? I mean, Luke is you know, more than 25 chapters. He doesn't say every single detail about Jesus' life. He doesn't write every moment. He picks and chooses based on the account that he wants to give for Jesus. 
So it begs the question, why does Luke decide to include this part of the story? I think he has a really good reason. You see, to him and to the rest of Jesus' followers, this wasn't just any old crucifixion in the Roman Empire. Luke knows that those who were being executed with Jesus that day were also part of an earth-shattering event in history. So important are these two criminals to Luke that he even records some of their final words on the cross. Here's some of them. Starts in verse 39. He records one of the criminals hanging beside him, scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Now this was a pretty common sentiment among the people at the time. The Jewish leader said it, the Roman guard said it, and now a criminal hanging on a cross next to him is saying it. Jesus made the claim that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one who came to forgive the sins of humanity and bring people into a new relationship with God through his death and resurrection. This is what causes him to end up on the cross. It wasn't his teaching. It wasn't his miracles. It wasn't some of the stories that he told. It wasn't even his combative language with the religious leaders at the time. It was the very fact that Jesus said, I am the Messiah. In fact, above his head, there was a sign, some of you know this, that said, King of the Jews, in mockery of him. It was written in three languages, so anybody who came and observed could read it and understand. The Roman guards placed a crown of thorns on his head in mockery to say, ah, the king of the Jews, ah, the Messiah, oh, the Savior, look at him bleed from his forehead. Now, it's in light of this, it's, I have to believe that the words of the criminal who says, ah, so you're the Messiah, why don't you go save yourself? And by the way, why don't you save us while you're at it? I have to believe as he says those words, the Roman guards and those among them, it drew laughter. How clever. I know. What an idiot, right? Just hanging there. King of the Jews, right? If he was so powerful, he would just get down from that cross. Of course, they have no idea what's going on, but you can imagine the scene as it's happening. And as that criminal says something, the other criminal decides to chime in. Verse 40. It says, but the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I know that some of you know this story, and I know that some of you, you maybe know parts of the story, but maybe you don't know this part of the story So I want to make sure that we paint the picture clearly here so that we don't make any assumptions about what's actually happening. Let's just zoom on out on what's happening here because, you know, Jesus and the two criminals, they're not, you know, they're not having coffee together right now, having this conversation. They are nailed to a cross. They are beaten. They are bloody. They are dying. And in the middle of that, They're having a conversation, which is crazy to think about. 
But they're nailed to this cross. I, I was in the 24-hour the prayer experience that we had that Joe mentioned. One of the stations, it has this small little railroad tie there. And as I was praying and as I was going through that station, I, I picked it up and I felt the weight of it. And then I was thinking of Jesus being nailed to the cross through his wrists. And, and I took that little nail and I just sort of pressed it against my skin. And I had this thought of, the, I cannot imagine somebody driving that nail through my wrist and then hanging me on a post. I can't imagine it. I couldn't even imagine what it must have felt like to have that nail forcefully driven through my wrists. But if that were bad enough, you know, these three men, they're going to eventually die of one of two things. They'll either die of asphyxiation or they'll die of severe blood loss. They will either suffocate to death from becoming so weak that they won't be able to pull their bodies up to grab a breath again, or they will bleed so much that their heart will stop beating. And while Jesus may not belong there, the other two do. Even the criminal on the cross says, hey, look, we, we deserve to be here. By Roman law, they had done something that landed them on that cross. Now, crucifixions were reserved for usually one of two things, treason or murder. And the fact that they are you know, called criminals, they're called thieves, leads us to believe that they were most likely there because of murder. But this criminal seems to think that Jesus is who he really is. And he says to him, today, uh, he says to him, I, I believe who you are. And Jesus then looks at this murdering criminal and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was simply because the guy just believed Jesus was who he said he was. Now, I don't want you to miss the absolute scandalous nature of what's happening. Because this man has known Jesus for a matter of minutes, right? He has committed the most heinous of all crimes. He's taken somebody else's life. He likely doesn't know a single word of the Bible. He hasn't heard the latest Elevation song or Brandon Lake song. He doesn't have his Sunday best on. I mean, he's naked. Thank you for not coming naked today. He's lived his life in complete contradiction to the way of Jesus. He's never been to a Sunday worship service or a Bible study or a small group. He's never given a dollar to a church or a ministry of any kind. He hasn't prayed a prayer to receive Jesus as his Savior. And yet in this man's waning moments of his life, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, what gives? What's happening here? I've been a Christian since I was eight years old. It seems a little unfair that a guy just is hanging there. He's like, listen, I'll do whatever I can, man. You're the Messiah. That, I don't think, is the heart. But, I mean, it feels that way, right? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like, what gives here? I want you to hold on to that question because I want to tell you the story of another man. Now, this man was an absolute contradiction to the criminal on the cross. In fact, these are his words in a letter that he wrote to a new church in the city of Corinth long after Jesus' death and resurrection. And here's what he writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. He says, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. 
You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, though, I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I'm least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Now, these are the words written by a guy named Paul. And at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul was the exact opposite of the criminal on the cross. Paul even describes his life in the book of Philippians And he says about himself that he was a Hebrew among Hebrews. He was a Jew if there ever was one. He was a circumcised, law-abiding, and zealous Jewish Pharisee. If there was a poster with what it meant to be a true follower of God in the first century, Paul's picture would be on it, right? He was everything the criminal wasn't. He was moral, at least by the Jewish standards. He knew every scripture ever written. He followed the law and instructions of God to a T. He went to all of the worship service. He knew all of the songs. He went to all of the Bible studies. He went to all of the worship nights. He dressed in his Sunday best every week. He knew the right lingo to say at the right time. He even took action against those who didn't believe what he believed or did what he did. I mean, he was posting thoughts on Instagram and TikTok about all the ways people were doing everything wrong. He was verified. You could follow him. And everybody was. He was the man when it came to what it meant to be a follower of God in the first century. He even went so far as to make these new Jesus followers pay for their heresy. At the end of that passage in verse 9, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. He He loved me even though I persecuted those who were following him. He made it a point to imprison and even kill and approve the killing of the first Christians in the first century. It is highly likely that Paul was in the crowds when Jesus stood before them with Pilate and Barabbas and he himself yelled, crucify him. You know, we have these accounts of Jesus on trial in this private room with religious leaders. And they put him on trial, and it's there that they decide he needs to be put to death. Do you know how we know that information? Paul was there. He would later tell Luke. He would later tell Matthew. This is what happened. I was there. I watched as they accused Jesus. I watched as they sentenced him to death. And yet, Paul says this religious stalwart, I mean, he's doing it all right that even he had been welcomed and saved by Jesus in the same manner as the criminal on a cross. It just doesn't seem quite right, does it? I mean, what gives? What, it's a little confused. How can Jesus be for both of these men? 
How can he be for both of them? Uh, He's for this criminal and he's for this religious stalwart, Paul. They're so different. They're so far apart on the spectrum of faith and life and everything about it. And they are both invited, it says, into this saving relationship with Jesus. How can a man who's lived his life in absolute rebellion and contradiction to God's way receive the same grace, love, and salvation as a man who has devoted his entire life to abiding by every word God had spoken until that moment. I believe there's only really two conclusions to this. The first is that Jesus is a lunatic. He just doesn't know what he's doing. He's just saying stuff. Sure, you could be with me in paradise. Sure, you could be, you know, a leader in the church. That's one option. The only other option is that he is who he says he is. Jesus is the Messiah. He's doing something so new among them and among us that we have a hard time even understanding it. It just doesn't quite seem right. You know, C.S. Lewis famously wrote the words that either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something else. Well, we know from the rest of Scripture that he was no madman. And you see, on Easter, we celebrate the fact that Jesus isn't a lunatic, but the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. On Easter, we remember that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead, appeared to hundreds, and has been living in and through billions of believers for centuries. On Easter, we remember that Jesus lived, died, and resurrected, both for the rebel and for the religious. He lived, died, and resurrected for those who know nothing about him and those who know everything about him. He lived, died, and resurrected for those who've lived their entire lives separate from him and for those who have used religion to somehow make their way to God. On Easter, we remember that Jesus is for everyone everywhere. And that should be good news to everyone in this room. Because here's the deal. It doesn't matter where you are in the spectrum of faith this morning. Jesus is for everyone, everywhere. You know, the story of the criminal reveals that it really doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or what you've become. It doesn't matter that you've struggled with the addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling, porn your entire life. He's for you. It doesn't matter that you've ruined multiple relationships because of your own selfishness and narcissism. He is for you. It doesn't matter that you've slept with so many people you've lost count. He is still for you. It doesn't matter that you've chased after every pleasure this world has to offer. Money and sex and power and fame and food and entertainment. He's still for you. It doesn't matter that you have hidden in the darkest places of your soul and heart. He is for you. And likewise... The story of Paul reveals that who you are and what you've done in this life don't matter as much as you think they do. It doesn't matter that you've tried to follow all of the rules and yet you still feel empty and exhausted. He's still for you. It doesn't matter that you've been burning bridges with people in an attempt to be right all of the time. He is still calling to you and saying, I am for you. 
It doesn't matter that you've read all the scriptures and you've been to all the Bible studies and you've listened to all the sermons and yet you still carry this burden of shame that says, I'm not good enough. He says, I'm still for you. I am here for you. He is for the criminals and the Pauls and everybody in between. Are you getting this? Are you getting how ridiculous and scandalous and wonderful all of this is? It's insanity. And yet it's exactly the way that God had set it up. Y'all need to hear this this morning. Easter reminds us that Jesus is for you. And he is not against you. And I know that some of you have come to the conclusion that God is somehow against you. And I'm sorry for that, but I want you to hear this morning that Easter reminds us that Jesus is for you and that there is nothing in your life that he wants to keep you separated from him. If a man hanging on a cross who murdered multiple people likely can say to Jesus, I think you are who you are, and Jesus say, today you're going to be with me in paradise, well then he has to be for us, right? If he can look at a Paul, who is this religious guy who persecuted his very first believers, and he appears to him and he says, I want to invite you into a new relationship, and he does, well then he has to be for us, does he not? You need to hear this this morning. Jesus is for you, not against you. Listen to these words our pal Paul writes in another book of the New Testament called Romans. Mm. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could be against us? You hear that? If God is for you, by the way, God is for you, who can be against you? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us, from, uh, accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who will then condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us, was raised to life for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us Listen to those words again. Jesus died for us. Jesus raised to life for us. Jesus is pleading for us. Don't tell me that Jesus is against you. Don't tell me that God is against you. He's angry at you. He spites you. Don't tell me that. It's furthest from it. He is for you. Yes, you and you and even you. He is for you. Easter reminds us that Jesus is for you because Jesus is for everyone, everywhere. I find it hard to believe sometimes that that's true. And you know, in my own sinful self, I kind of don't want that to be true sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? But if it's true for me, then it's got to be true for everyone else too. If it's true for the criminal, then it's got to be true for everyone else. If it's true for Paul, then it's got to be true for everyone else. And so I read the scriptures and I see a Jesus who is for the world, who came to bring redemption and forgiveness and new life to the world. All people, all walks of life, all histories and backgrounds and stories to come and to sing 
praises to our God and our King Jesus. And so then the question is, will you, like the criminal and Paul, will you simply recognize it this morning? Will you receive his grace and his love and his acceptance? Will you believe that he's for you, that he lived and died and resurrected to forgive you of your past and give you new life for the future? Will you stop living as if all of this isn't true and simply place your faith in the one who is for you, who came for you, who died for you, who rose again for you, the one who was resurrected from the dead so that you might be resurrected to new life?